Before we get started, I thought you might laugh as hard as I did afterward. When I played the tape of my interview with Goddard College President Bernard Bull, I listened back to one of my children sneaking in the room and asking me to wipe their butt after they poop. I'm sorry. I know. Potty talk. But do you guys remember the footage two years ago of Robert Kelly, the professor from South Korea whose kid waddled into the frame as video rolled of his live interview with the BBC? I couldn't help but sympathize. How does this tie into my conversation with Dr. Bernard Bull? Only that he's a family person, too. I know he gets uh, it. I'm Bernard Bull. I currently serve as president of Goddard College, one of our nation's first and, to me, most inspiring models of learner-driven progressive education with a libertary focus. I was formerly the chief innovation officer and vice provost of Concordia University, Wisconsin, where I worked on all sorts of aspects of education, new program development, online learning, blended learning, low residency education, um, uh, education R&D. I'm the founder of Birdhouse Learning Lab, which is on hold a little bit right now, given I stay a little bit busy as president of a college, but um, it's a firm focused upon human-centered design and exploring approaches to inspired life and learning. And in my own work, it's really inspired by ideas, education, education R&D, experiments, quests, curiosity, uh, moments of wonder, and uh, I like to find those glimpses of grace every so often in this world, especially in this current age we find ourselves in. Uh, first and foremost, I find I consider myself to be a writer, a designer, and uh, an aspiring leader. My guest today is Dr. Bernard Bull. This episode, we're talking about human-centered learning experience design. And rather than spoil it for you, I'm going to let Dr. Bull explain. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Before we get into it, I just want to tell you all how much I have appreciated your response to my requests over the last several months to get onto our Facebook page and like the page, uh, but most importantly, check out the listener survey at the top of the page. I really need your feedback. What you tell me helps me produce better episodes for you. I can't thank you enough in advance for your time, and I promise it won't take more than three minutes. While you're at it, if you wouldn't mind, go back to wherever you downloaded the show. Subscribe, rate, and review. So, uh, Bernard, uh, like a month ago, um, you gave a talk that was the genesis of this conversation to the Iowa Community College Online Consortium called A Case for Human-Centered Learning Experience Design. Uh, and I have so much to talk to you about. Uh, I always love uh, catching up and hearing where your mind is. But but I want to start there and just ask, how did the talk go? And, and what were the things that uh, resonated the most then and uh, since, as I imagine you're, you're sort of putting a, a talk like that uh, out into the world in, in different ways and sort of uh, iterating as you go. Sure. So um, I'll make this kind of autobiographical a little bit to give some context to the talk. This title, human-centered uh, learning experience design, this phrase, it's something I've been grappling with for years and years, and I've just sort of come to flesh it out. And I tested this new way of talking about learning experience design with this audience for the first time. 
So um, I've given you know a couple hundred invited and keynote presentations around the world in the last decade, and um, a lot of those talks are things that I've done five, six, seven, eight times, or at least significant chunks of them. And this was largely new. I mean, the concepts weren't entirely new. These are things that people who follow my writing and, and my work, they, they certainly will recognize them. But to put it into this kind of framework that I did, um, this was a first. And that's always a little bit interesting because uh, they're, uh, we're, we're all experimenting on one another a little bit. And it was a, a pretty large group of, of faculty. And I love the community college system. It plays such an important role in our higher education system. And this is incredible pathway and uh, gateway for access and opportunity for people. And I'm always inspired by community college uh, teachers. There's something just special about many of them that, that I've met. So this was a great group to test it on, especially given that my work bridges both higher education and K-12 education or P-12 mm -hmm. education. Mm -hmm. So this community college space uh, bridges those two worlds in some ways. Um, so I tried it out with them and I, I was really struggling until about a week before because I was looking for some kind of overriding metaphor that would really help people understand what I was suggesting. Because really what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm challenging the, the underlying construct behind the modern uh, and most dominant models of instructional design and curriculum development. Mm. That's really what I was doing. And so how do I do that in a way that's radical in an inspiring way, but not radical in an off-putting way? Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and that was really what I was attempting. And it was, it was, it seemed really well received. I mean, sometimes you can only measure it by the number of emails you get afterward and the number of people that stick around and they want to talk to you, but it's really well received. And, and this is actually, um, this talk is actually an expression of my 12 year personal strategic plan. I actually do a uh, decade long strategic plans for myself, personal plans. And I turned 48 just April 20th. Um, and, um, I'd pretty much done most of what I'd intended to do during my 40s. So I decided to get a head start on my 50s, and I'm doing a 12-year plan. And my 12-year plan is really focused upon effecting change in this particular area, uh, bringing us back to a more human-centered approach in relationship with technology and the digital age, mm. um, and a more human-centered approach to, um, to learning environments. Um, so that's really where it comes from. Where did the idea of... Um, of First of all, was this your first completing your first cycle of tenure uh, planning for yourself? And, and uh, yeah. <laughs> sec second question, second question is where did that idea come from? Yeah, so I uh, I have no idea where it came from, um, but I can say that the, I did this initially in my twenties, and um, it was more in my twenties. I didn't call it a strategic plan; I just called it a long list of goals. Mm -hmm. And, and then when I got to my thirties and I'd been going through the le leadership literature and stepping into some leadership roles, uh, I started thinking about more in terms of a personal mission and, um, and a vision statement and thinking about strategies and then, um, action steps and, um, and how am I going to measure my progress and, and just sort of the strategic planning language showed up in, in my thirties, although, uh, um, or, uh, in my forties. Uh, so my thirties, and then I got to my forties and, and I got this crazy idea. It was a strategic plan, but it was actually 40 things I wanted to do 40 times in my forties, <laughs> that was all kind of hidden within a strategic plan. 
And they were all, I mean, they were, some of them were really just sort of fun, playful things, but they all related to things around health and wellness and um, my, uh, my goals around um, just caring self-care and, and having the impact in the world that I wanted to, the relationship with my family, with, with friends, with community, um, my intellectual curiosity, sort of feeding that. Uh, looking at where uh, I think Frederick uh, Buchner uh, called where your deep gladness uh, meets the world's uh, deep needs or great needs, something like that. I uh -huh. think I butchered that quote. Um, and so I had everything from I want to watch 40 sunsets to visit 40 places to have 40 different kinds of smoothies um, to um, publish 40 different uh, articles in, in different uh, or books in, in different sources. Um give 40 presentations that I can really be proud of. So I had all sorts of things and they all tied into a broader set of, of goals and, and strategies. That's outstanding. Um, I love the idea. You're, you're uh, inspiring me to do more sort of deliberate <clears throat> documentation around those things. I would imagine that your 40 articles and, and um, I would imagine some of that, uh, is why you the the way that I really came to know you is as a blogger. Mm -hmm. uh, in previous roles, um, I found I found you first as a writer and somebody who was just I was reading you saying a lot of things that I believed really deeply and uh, was feeling in some cases like the only one who was um, just sort of you get into that bubble where you where you fear that you're. Uh, you're crazy or, uh, um, you know, there's, there's no one out there seeing the, the tensions in the system, the way, uh, the way you might, in which case you start to feel, you start to doubt yourself anyway. Uh, finding your blog, uh, was important to me. And, and so I would imagine that some of that writing comes from some of those goals. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote, I have, I think I have just a thousand articles on that's on the blog e-tail and, um, uh, I've written in a lot of other places too, but, but that is, that's my public journal in some ways. I write it to, with uh, the idea that there are people listening and are reading. Um, I always think about uh, my blogging as inviting people to join me for a digital cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't really drink coffee, but that's okay. Others <laughs> might. And, and, um, and, and that's really where I think, and I, I put rough draft ideas out there, typos and all. Um, in fact, I, <laughs> that's probably the most common feedback that I would get um, in my early years on my blog was people gently, kindly sending me emails, noting all of my typos and <laughs> grammatical errors. And um, and for a university administrator professor, that's something that people, you know, we can get pretty uh, persnickety and, and um, pretty uptight about those kinds of things. Right. And I don't. Um, I, that's, I understand the difference between an edited work and a non-edited work. And on my blog, I state um, in the about section, this is rough draft thinking. And I also, on my blog, changed my mind. So I've had things that I've written. I think at one point, I had written more than anyone else on the planet, um, just publicly about uh, micro-credentials, mm -hmm. and um, especially on the philosophical side of them, yeah. um, some of the possibilities. I'd written a good 60-plus articles in those first couple of years. And uh, I totally changed my mind 
on a lot of that stuff. And, and I wrote a kind of public declaration. And I also, at the beginning of every year, I do these uh, forecasting uh, posts about what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite candid about where I mess up and where I got it wrong. But then I do an L, a, a sort of a post-mortem, post-mortem and say, okay, why did I get it wrong? What happened? And what was right? And was there kind of a spirit to what I said that mm-hmm. was spot on or not? Um, so that has been... Um, that has been huge for me in my own work. And, it, and that's an expression of a lot. That's where I'm working out a lot of my strategic planning, a lot of my goals. Um, and you know, you said you, uh, first saw me or experienced me as a writer. That's how I experienced myself. Um, I always, I was an aspiring writer for a number of years. And then in my thirties really dove into it heavily. And, um, and that's where I identify most. I mean, um, I'm a college president, uh, right now, and it's a, college that's going through some pretty serious stress and there's some unpredictability about where it will go. I, I stepped into the college in that situation, but it's incredible and, and needs to be in the world. Um, but then whenever I go to the little college cottage uh, uh, apartment, I live on on campus here in Vermont. Um, my family's not with me at the moment. Um, I take two, three, sometimes four hours at night, it might be from um, 10 to two or eight to midnight. And I read and I write. And for me, that's what feeds me. That's what inspires me. Uh, that's where I organize my, my thoughts. Mm. So coming back to your talk, you said the struggle a week prior was <clears throat> finding the metaphor. Yes. <clears throat> what, what, where did you land? <laughs> okay, so here it is. I'll, I'll try, try it on you and see what you think. <laughs> so uh, think about this, this description and let's see if, if you can guess what I'm describing. Uh, it starts with with subtle physiological changes, but most people around don't even notice the physiological changes. Next, you start to see some impaired thinking, and people have trouble just paying attention. It's just it's like it's like they're in the wrong place. Mm. They they're just not clicking, and then uh, eventually they find that some things that they could do just fine in other places they're struggling to do. The basic tasks are really hard to accomplish. Um, and then they just start making bad decisions. They seem tired. They are moody. They can't manage their emotions very well. Um, sometimes then they, they fall asleep. So what am I describing? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to answer with the first thing that comes to mind, which is it feels to me like an anxiety dream. Okay. An anxiety dream. Well, what I was trying to describe is, is, uh, uh yeah, that's cool. That's cool. It's, it, those are actually the, the clinical description of hypoxia or oxygen deficiency. Okay. So I um, wasn't too far off. Yeah, that's right. You're actually pretty close. And, and the reason I, I described this is because when you actually go back and you look at that list, those are not far off from the complaints that teachers and people have about student behaviors in classrooms. Hmm. They're tired. They're not focusing. I see them. They're energetic and they have all this potential. I see them have it outside of the school. How come they can't bring it into the classroom? Mm-hmm. And they're saying these kinds of things and these descriptions. And, and I had this, this moment and I realized, okay, wait a second. So these traits are traits of people who have a physiological response to oxygen deficiency. Could it be that our schools have unintentionally created the intellectual equivalent of oxygen deficiency? Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Right. 
and and uh, and so that's kind of where I ended up. And in terms of the uh, um, uh, the, the opening metaphor that I'm building this on, that I I believe I believe that our modern world and many of our workplaces and many of our learning contexts are unknowingly and unintentionally creating conditions that are similar to oxygen deficiency for people. Mm. And, um, and this is one that's, that's a little bit dated. It's almost cliche, but I can't really get away from it. Um, and I know some people challenge this narrative, this history, but, uh, when we look at the development of the industrial revolution and we look at the kinds of priorities that helped us, uh, make what people define as progress, Mm. (laughs) um, they come down to a set of, of core priorities and, and priority is a good word, right? Because uh, priority is about something that it, it goes before other things. It, it takes the top, uh, our, our greatest attention. It's not like we don't attend to other things. It's just that these are the things that win the, the battle. If we have to make a decision between something on the right or something on the left, the priority is the one that wins. Whatever, choose whether that's right or left. Mm. Um, and, and so what I'm, what I'm arguing is that we have an approach to curriculum development, to educational design, to instructional design that is informed by industrial age priorities. And um, these are priorities like uh, standardization and uniformity. We prioritize, we value standardization over a lack of standardization. We value uh, uniformity over um, uh, diversity um, in terms of, uh, of curriculum and the like. Um, uh, mass production and scale. That in the end, we tend to celebrate those things that can be mass produced. Um, I mean, follow the whole common core debate whenever that played out. And I remember sitting in a room with closed doors and uh, vendors and a key high level representative from the U.S. Department of Education a number of years ago saying, okay, we all know what this is about. This is about mass production. Mm-hmm. This is about scale. You all have educational products and you can, you have to you have to differentiate them by state because each state has different standards. And if we get the common core out there, now you can actually produce a product that can be sold across states. And that makes it a lot easier to achieve your financial goals and, and to scale. And there, so there's this, there's this celebration of mass production and scale. Um, and it's, it's prioritized over other things. Efficiency and order is another one, right? Or another pairing. Um, uh, this, if, if it's more efficient, then it's often celebrated as better. Um, quantification and measurement. If we can measure it, um, people always say that you, uh, we um, measure what we value. Mm. What's interesting, because I don't know the last time that I've measured my marriage, but I really value it. Mm. So uh, how true is that in every context or every situation? Uh, my, my relationship with my, my daughter or my son, I really value it, but I don't measure it. <laughs> so, um, so I'm not convinced that that's, that's quite true, but we sort of celebrate those kinds of narratives. Um, Another one is centralized power and authoritarianism. Um, mechanization is another one. Um, and I'd say that mechanization automation, it's a really interesting one because there's a tension in education today. There are lots of people pushing back on the automation because they're seeing how it can impact jobs. Mm. They're worried about the dehumanization. This is one that's actually kind of a wake-up call for some people as they're kind of grappling with what this means. Um, and, um, uh, and yet... It's a industrial age priority that persists into this new kind of uh, digital expression of the industrial age too. Um, and then the last one is just technology. Technology is simply applied scientific knowledge and people celebrate it. So much so that in the education system, whenever technology really kind of 
uh, started finding its way. Integration of technology language found its way into the classroom. It started in the 80s and then in the 90s, it hit this craze. And then in 2000, it just sort of you know uh, blew up. Mm. That integration of technology in itself was a value to be celebrated. I remember talking to a calculus teacher who was giving a small presentation to a group of other teachers, and this was this was years ago, and so like 2001. And um, he had he had found a uh, a website of a candy manufacturer. I won't name the candy manufacturer that taught how to. There are these small little round candies that have a letter on them. Maybe that gives you a hint. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it was a website that. Uh, had some mathematical concepts. So you could go and you could play around with these pieces of candy and structure them up and do fractions and all this stuff. And he was teaching what he was doing, right, um, with the students. Had absolutely nothing to do with teaching calculus. I mean, there was math in it, but it wasn't calculus. Um, And yet he was integrating technology into his class. Um, And so that was celebrated. Hmm. So, um, and I'm I'm doing a little bit of straw man here in the way of representing it, but but my argument is that these are the seven sort of sets of industrial age priorities that really dominate how we approach curriculum development, how we approach instructional design. So, for example, if I give you an idea, if I tell you the story of uh, Goddard College, or um, I mean, we are an incredible model of education. We've never used letter grades since the 1930s. Mm. Narrative feedback, deep personal mentoring. There are no courses there are no credits in the traditional sense. The students are co-creators of the curriculum. They don't just do what the instructors tell them. They actually, the first question that students are usually asked is, what do you want or need to learn? And then they're invited into that. And you can earn a master's degree or bachelor's degree in this pathway or this experience. Um, it's, it's really inspiring. And whenever I talk to people who come from kind of the legacy education model, one of the first questions they say is, well, how do you validate what they have or haven't learned? Hmm. Well, talk to them, <laughs> have a conversation, look at what they're doing in the world. Like I can give some kind of qualitative answers to that. And I can, I can describe the rich narrative feedback of a mentor who's gotten to know them really, really well. And they have pages and pages of narrative feedback about the student's work over the last semester. Um, and people look at that as well. Yeah. How do you quantify that? Mm. How do you standardize that? Well, we, we, and, and yet what's so interesting is we're in a system where we use letter grades that are not standardized. It's sort of a fictitious expression of quantification. Um, we know that there are all sorts of other factors that come into play. Um, and yet we celebrate it because it, it gives us a sense of comfort that we're leaning into these priorities, mm-hmm. right? So, so essentially what I'm arguing is these are actually, no, no I, I'm coming off really strongly here, um, but I actually think every single one of these, these priorities, they're actually values that are good and useful in our society and our world. There's a place for standardization. I think that healthcare is probably better with it than without it in many situations. Um, mass production and scale often have opportunities. We can use mass production to address issues of poverty and other, and other things like that at times too. Maybe there are other better like local solutions though, <laughs> I would suggest. Yeah. Um, but efficiency, order, quantification, there's a time for centralized power. There's a time for, I mean, I'm not dismissing all of these technology. I mean, my doctorate's in instructional technology, and I've been a Ludvigate for a number of years, both a champion and a critic. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I grew, helped grow an online program from 300 to 3,000 in five years at a, at a university before. I believe in the power of online learning. Um, so I'm not, uh, there's, there's power behind these. These are, these are really, really promising. Hmm. The only problem is these values fall short whenever they're made priorities because they're incapable of infusing oxygen into our learning context. I mean, they're disconnected from our most fundamental yearnings as human beings. 
And uh, and when I say our most fundamental yearnings, this is this is uh, coming from uh, we can look at modern psychology and modern modern positive psychology and what that literature tells us about human well being and flourishing. We can also look at ancient traditions across religious traditions and across cultures and history and contexts, and there are a set of of, of values and priorities that seem to that seem to journey across so many of those contexts. They're in our greatest narratives. They're in everything from the Star Wars saga and well, the Avengers film that just kind of came out, um, and to uh, to some of our ancient myths across different cultures and traditions. Mm. And 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 so part of what I was proposing to this group of faculty and what I'm proposing to the education system is we've we're using when we write a lesson plan or when I do uh, curriculum development. Why am I using the industrial priorities to frame everything out? I can use those as values. I can still talk about measurement and these other things. But maybe my core questions, the questions that I begin with, maybe those should start with our most fundamental human yearnings, the ones that hardly anyone will disagree with. That, that uh, when, when I share this list in a moment, if we get to it, <laughs> um, uh, I think it's really hard for anyone to say, oh, that's not important in the human experience, mm-hmm. right? They, I mean, these are so kind of core and fundamental. And yet, even though they're that way, and even though they're the, they're the things that people add to their lives when they're struggling with anxiety or depression, or they, uh, they're just looking for something feels like it's missing in their lives, these are actually the things that people turn to, to address those problems. For some reason, our communities, like workplaces and schools, we forget this um, too often. Now, there are plenty of beautiful examples. As you know, I've written a lot about the amazing communities that I believe embody these values mm. really beautifully. So the, the human-centered learning priorities, and what I'm suggesting is that we build a new approach to instructional design and curriculum development that prioritizes questions around each of these. Um, the, the first one that I identified is, is uh, adventure and quests. That this sense of being on a quest, that I'm, I, uh, that, that uh, there's a sense of mission or adventure. It doesn't necessarily have to be me, you know, Hercules going on his twelve labors. Um, it could be a very local or an internal quest. But that kind of language, that kind of narrative, maybe I'm a little too Jungian here or something. But uh, that's really, really powerful, mm-hmm. and it is across cultures and contexts. If we look at the great, uh, uh, the great pieces of literature and religious traditions, and and um, in, in just other cultural expressions and music and and the arts, we see um, we see representations of quests, um, agency, and action. So this sense that what I do and what I say that it makes a difference in the world. Um, and then it moves me to take action to affect change in my own life, in my community, and in the world. That also, that's oxygen. That's oxygen to the human spirit, <laughs> right? Or to the human psyche, <clears throat> or however you want to represent it. Adventure and quest, those are oxygen. Agency and action, that's, that's, um, that's oxygen. Another one is compassion and connectedness. That to have this, this moment of compassion and, or even empathy, for another person or another living being, and this this craving to be connected with with other people, you know, in the Judeo Christian uh, narrative about uh, sort of uh, the or- origin narratives, um, there's a there's a piece where um, um, where uh, the Lord speaks and says, "It is not good for man to be alone," <laughs> right? Um, and uh, uh, and 
And it's so interesting because in that narrative, that's actually before things kind of went awry. <laughs> it's like before things kind of got mixed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, regardless of whether someone believes in that tradition or that narrative or anything, it's really interesting that, that humans uh, resonated with a narrative that recognizes that at our core being, even before things seemed to kind of go awry, um, we craved connection with other people. It's not good to be alone right? That this, this need for connectedness. Um, so, so, so that's a piece experimentation and play. I mean, play is the research is, is really, really abundantly clear that play is essential to healthy, uh, human development. Um, and as we develop and once we, and as we become adults, it's actually pretty important for us (laughs) to stay energized and, uh, to stay connected to the best of that inner child, uh, experimentation as well. We don't really grow or develop unless we learn to experiment and to test things out and to try them. Your work certainly speaks to that. Mm-hmm. Um, mastery and growth is also a key piece here. It's not just kind of, uh, there's also a sense of, of progress. And mastery and growth also ties into the theme of adventure and quest and agency and action and compassion and connection because it's within those others that we have, we find ourselves uh, craving growth and mastery. So if I'm on an adventure, what do I need to know to go on the next part of the adventure? Yeah to uh to slay the dragon or whatever it might be um and then meaning and purpose um that's oxygen the sense of meaning and purpose the compelling why the reason um there was a you know there's a great study I, I used to reference a lot about um a guy who studied why do students fall asleep in class in college he did yeah. a, a, a grounded theory study and after studying interview after interview after interview he came up with a two-word answer they fall asleep in class not because they're tired or sleepy or anything else it's because of perceived meaninglessness because whenever what they're hearing or experiencing does not resonate with something meaningful in their life. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in education, the old school lesson planning of uh, Madeline Hunter's anticipatory set is about having a hook at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, that's not a, just a hook at the beginning. That's core to the learning experience all the way throughout. Um, and then the last one is uh, wonder and mystery. Um, having moments of wonder. Wonder is this incredible human experience that, I mean, think about the fact that um, I can have an experience 20 years ago that lasts 10 seconds, and I can remember it, remember it vividly today. And many of us have had that. When we have moments of wonder, they are so powerful they take, uh, that they take that kind of effect. So why would we as educators, for example, why would we ignore or disregard something as incredibly powerful as wonder? Um, and there's some great literature out there, for example, about how wonder can transform math instruction, mm-hmm. math education, that to, to have these experiences of wonder. So, so really, that's that was kind of my presentation. And then I got into some practical pieces about it. Was I was essentially arguing that we have these industrial priorities. We can still keep them as values, but I was arguing for these this new pairing of seven to be the the leading priorities, um, and drawn from ancient traditions and modern research about fundamental human yearnings. And how do we then pose questions that will lead us to design learning environments and experiences that really breathe oxygen? And, and I, I talk about the idea of inspired living. The word inspire is to breathe in, right? So that's really what we're talking about here. How do we create inspired learning moments? Moments where people breathe in exactly what we crave as human beings. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fire away uh, some questions in part as a way to to prepare you for 
to to keep iterating on the ideas and and prepare you for the questions that inevitably, if you haven't gotten yet, you're you, are coming your way. The f- yes. the first of which is you you can't um, you can't hear a list of seven things that starts with quest and ends with wonder, um, and not feel like you know. Uh, if, if you are a, let's say you're a career education administrator, um, who has spent a career, uh, understanding that their goal was standardization and mechanization and, and these kinds of things, you can't hear a list like this and not think this is some hippy dippy (laughs) Vermont, (laughs) college president uh waxing you know from his cottage um what do you say to to people who feel like that language um just isn't practical enough for uh you know for education whether it's um whether it's past present or future right well well uh, uh, i do need to work on that and actually i'm working on two books so one is a small book called breathe where I try to lay out sort of this vision, just in, it's going to be a short book. I, mm-hmm. I envision it as one of those Austin Cleon books. I don't know if you've seen his books, like show your work really short. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other, the other book is called 12 quests where I actually invite people to try this out for themselves because what I've come to believe is I don't know. Remember I have a 12 year strategic plan. Yep. I'm actually not starting with the schools. I'm starting with human beings. So my first piece of writing is I'm realizing I have to spend some time inviting people to test these out in their own lives. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's actually how a lot of great ideals find their way into education. I mean, the industrial models of education did not come from education. Mm-hmm. They came from uh, business and other areas, and then they found their way into education. Um, and so that's kind of how I'm starting. So I'm actually not too concerned with trying to address that question immediately uh, to the administrators, but here, here's, here's, here's some ways that, that I, I have responded and that I, I would respond. One is, okay, these may sound hippy dippy, uh, to people, but when you hear this list, um, is it, aren't these the things that enrich your life? I mean, uh, isn't connectedness something that's made your life better? Mm. Um, aren't moments of wonder important to you in life? And what would your life be like without moments of wonder or moments of mystery? Hmm. And um, are you not on a grand adventure? Um, Have you not ever been on a a venture that you consider noble or worthy of the sacrifice that you're making along the way? Um, uh, Do you, are there times where um, you felt like you had no control and did that enrich your life or did that diminish it? And other times whenever you were empowered or you experienced your own power and you had a sense of agency and you took action and you made a difference in the world and wasn't that a big deal for you? Wasn't that important? So for me, um, I, I really want to invite people to just, this is not some, and, uh, again, it's, it's not just limited to sort of the idealistic people out here. This, these are values that have shown up for millennia hmm. over and over and over again. These have elected presidents and world leaders for better or for worse. They are the narratives that have brought in billions of dollars in, 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 in uh, 
not in the selling of, <clears throat> of books and films. They are present in the music that we love the most. They are also what have inspired some of the greatest uh, <clears throat> scientific accomplishments and other accomplishments in humankind. Mm. I mean, JFK's moonshot, by the end of this decade, we are going to send a man to the moon and bring him back safely, mm. right? That was a quest. He challenged the entire nation to go on a quest. Now, whether people like that particular quest or not, that was a quest. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm picturing... I'm picturing um, um uh you know you know how in curriculum development often uh we start with and what people often know as the acronym swabat students will be able to students will know and be able to yep. um i'm i'm picturing a a bullet for uh a, a criteria for a leadership class of jfk's that's a will know and be able to uh, send a man to the moon send, and bring him back safely. Send, send people to the moon and bring him back safely. I don't. I don't think it existed. Um, yeah. I. Um, before we go further into that, I want to. Um, I want to come back to. We've been talking a lot about uh, curriculum design versus what um, is often referred to as instructional design or ID. Um, can you just talk, you have uh, actually held roles in um, in many of these de design capacities. Can you just tell us the difference between ID, for example, and other types of uh, learning design? Yeah, so, um, well, there's so many ways to answer this and anybody who's listening will have an opinion upon whether my characterization is accurate or not. But um, instructional design is, uh, is a pretty systematic approach to designing learning experiences. And it did not start in the K-12 space or even in higher education. It actually grew more in military and other kinds of training environments and the like. Oftentimes has a pretty, there are many different instructional design models, but the, you know, the ADDIE model is the one that people talk about a lot. That There's a start with an analysis, like analysis of what is it that we want people to be able to do at the end, analysis of the tasks that are involved, analysis of the prospective of the learners and, um, <clears throat> you know, what's the context, uh, what kind of uh, restrictions are involved. So you do all that analysis and then you get into the design phase where based upon that information you gleaned in the analysis phase, you, you begin to... Uh, uh, design or map out a plan. It's like a blueprint for a house. You're not building the house yet, but you're designing it. Mm -hmm. And then you, uh, uh, then you develop from there and you implement it, put it in practice, and then you evaluate to, to determine, we you know what worked and what didn't work. Right. Yep. Um, and instructional design, it's like, um, for educators who haven't really been in the instructional design world, imagine a lesson plan that you spend 150 hours on, <laughs> right. Uh, mm -hmm. that it's, where you're really going through uh, step by step. And so in that sense, it almost has a product development kind of feel to it. So it's it's more how you would design an educational product or yeah. a, a really detailed learning ex, uh, experience. Um, and people spend hours upon hours building uh, these these really, really robust instructional design uh, um uh, learning experience or experiences using instructional design. Um, instructional design has become, has become particularly important in the educational technology field because now we have all these different platforms, there are different educational software packages, and people are drawing from the field of instructional design to create those learning experiences that are embedded within the software mm -hmm. or the other platforms. Um, the other thing 
that's becoming peculiar, though, is that uh, there are educational platforms that don't have any content, but they're the places where you build the learning, and they have instructional design biases sort of embedded into them, mm. um, sort of decisions made for you in some ways. Um, so that's instructional design. Uh, curriculum development is a much broader thing. I mean, the word curriculum comes from the Latin uh, curia has to do for uh, or, uh, um, a race. It's like a race course. Um, it's uh, what course do you want to create? You're going to have them run this course. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the journey, the learning journey they're on. And curriculum development tends to have more time and, and opportunity at the beginning for questions about educational philosophy mm-hmm. um, and theory that informs. There's not a, not as much of that that happens in the kind of more narrow instructional design work. The, the person who's an instructional designer might be drawing from some of that, yeah. but it's not kind of in the model as much. But curriculum development oftentimes starts with that, starts with some of those those big questions. And then um, and then it goes from there. Curriculum development it can be that, that bigger picture about uh, designing the entire curriculum across a school or a content area from, from kindergarten through eighth grade. It's everything from the learning objectives to the assessments to the learning experiences along the way, or at least core experiences or core resources. It's, uh, it tends to be on that, that uh, level above, uh, that kind of higher level. Instructional design is more like at the lesson planning level, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I think that's other people have different views, but (laughs) no, I think it's really helpful because I I actually think that a lot of folks, especially if you're coming out of an academic background in teaching and learning, um, oftentimes the um, differentiation between things like ID and curriculum design and other things, it isn't really the focus uh, so much as you you often get handed sort of uh, templates for doing these things, but, but it's not about necessarily the, the process of the practice, um, certainly of, of uh, instructional design. So I think it's just helpful to carve out um, some definitions there. So, um, so, but now let's, let's shift a little bit and talk about um, human centered design, which, um, so there's this element of what you're suggesting around these seven, um, what are you calling them? Seven priorities right now. Priorities. Yeah. Okay. So we have these seven priorities and, and so the human centered aspect or approach to, um, these priorities is, is more about the, I'm I'm giving a, a stab here, but is more about the sort of praxis um, as it relates to cultivating learning experiences, whether they be, uh, you know, a, an academic, uh, you know, whether it be a, a college seminar or a uh, pre-K exploration of shapes. Um, the These priorities are more about uh, our, our sort of guideposts and the human centered design aspect is about the sort of practice of how we get there. So does that sound right? I, I think so. And I'm kind of fleshing it up myself too, too. But, but if we were, if we were going to break this down into some really practical pieces for teachers, because I'm not quite there yet, um, because I am, uh, again, I'm, I'm spending these next few years sort of introducing the concepts and, um, and inviting people to try to test them out in their own lives mm-hmm. through really simple, what I call life experiments. Um, in fact, I have a little website I even created uh, that's that's uh, an expression of some of this. Um, and it comes from a very, very deeply personal uh, time in my own life uh, where I started trying out life experiments. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the life experiment is something for me that I usually can conduct in seven to 10 days where I do something, uh, seven to 10 times, uh, to test out a practice or habit to see yeah. if it might be useful for my yeah. life. I like that. Um, and their practices around experiencing gratitude and wonder. So for example, you know, a lot of people know Martin Seligman, uh, the book flourish where he found, he did an empirical study of people who had a very simple, uh, bedtime gratitude experiment where, mm-hmm. uh, before they go to bed, they, uh, write down three things that went well for them that day. And after each one, why it went well, mm-hmm. they had to assess why it went well. Um, and in his study, he found that for some people that actually reduced, um, the symptoms of anxiety and depression as much as antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty powerful, right? So that if you, if you could have a daily practice that could replace a medication for some people, mm-hmm. um, that's really intriguing and, and really worth our attention. And so what I've been doing is I've been looking at some of the research around uh, well-being, human well-being, and also tying into some of these ancient traditions or practices across cultures that are intriguing. Um, and I've, I've been writing uh, recipes, <laughs> these little like step-by-step, here's what you can do for seven to 10 days to try out this practice and mm. see if it works for you. Um, and it's, it's a, you mind if I mention the website on here? No, it, please. Okay. It's called what is in the air. Uh, just, uh, what is in the air.com. And, uh, I have maybe 15 or 16 of them on there <clears throat> right now. Um, and I do, if people want I get pretty personal in my story about, uh, why I started these and mm-hmm. they can learn about that on the website. Um, uh, I have a little video there and, and on the about page, I, I describe it. People can sign up for a little newsletter if they want to stay up on, on my progress in this area. Um, but I do things like, for example, there's this really cool body of literature around mindfulness that's been growing. And then there are people interested in photography and they've combined the two. And so there's mindfulness photography. And, uh, this is ideal of, of sort of mindfulness through the lens, uh, literally through the lens of your camera. Um, and the, uh, you know, the, there's also the body of literature around gratitude. So, I will take the literature around mindfulness photography and the literature around exercises in gratitude. And I've put together this little assignment to go out and take pictures of things for which you are grateful Mm. and to do this for a certain number of days. And I always include them to do uh, journaling. I think I should actually uh, find a partner to sell journals on my uh, blog because Mm. I tell people to journal during every single every single page. So if there's right. anyone listening who sells journals and they want to, <laughs> they want to, you know, underwrite this project, that's great. Um, but, um, but that's or, actually or, or an instructable about making your own journal. Oh yeah, that's true. That would work as well. Be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so anyway, that's actually, um, that, that I'm trying to give people a, a sense of what it would look like. And all these are in essence, every life experiment, it's a mini quest. It's a miniature adventure mm-hmm. and it's tied to one of these other kinds of priorities. Um, but if we were going to do this on a, like a classroom basis, mm-hmm. I would say, for example, under the quest and adventure, um, I, I would pose some questions for someone to ask whenever they're designing their unit or lesson or their entire course. And one would simply be, are there calls to a quest in this course? I mean, just pose that question and see where it takes you or how does this course support the existing quests of learners mm. are the learner are, uh, many of the learners in our class are on some kind of quest in their life already mm-hmm. they may or may not know what quest they're on but uh, are they on a quest uh, they're, yeah. they're on a quest and is there a way in which this learning experience can connect 
with that quest. Now, you notice that actually isn't that far from the analysis, the learner analysis phase of instructional design, but I'm using human-centered design language. And I believe that's important because that leads how we approach it. That mm-hmm. breeds, some, breeds some life into it. Um, <clears throat> and then another question someone could say um, on the, on the uh, 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 is just, how can I use the language of quests and adventures when talking about what we're doing in this course? Because we know there's a, a significant body of literature to point out that language matters. Yep. The metaphors we use can lead people for or away from something. Um, and, uh, and another way people could ask this, and this is for those who really want to go to the next step, and there are some great educational products that can assist, uh, even like quest-based LMSs and things like that. Mm. Um, what would my course look like as a quest or if it were embedded into one or more narratives, kind of quest-based narratives, yeah. you know, what would that look like? Um, and, you know, uh, Chris Haskell at Boise State with uh, Resley, mm-hmm. um, that's an example of, uh, of a, um, a learning management system that's kind of designed around a quest-based environment. I think that's, that's really hopeful. That's really an encouraging uh, potential practice. So oh. that's, that's kind of how I'm going to play out with each of these is, is to give people some initially some questions to begin to pose as they go about um, imagining the design of their learning environment. I will link to uh, to the site you mentioned at, at uh, Boise State. Um, what was what was his name again? Um, Chris Haskell. Haskell. Um, yeah. H a s k e l l. I think that's what he did. His he's a I think he's faculty member there still. Mm-hmm. And um, I apologize because he was co-founder with one of his professors, I believe, at Boise State when they created Resley. That's its new name. It had a former one as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember what it was now. Um, but, uh, Barry Fishman actually at university of Michigan, Gradecraft. um, yep. he, and, oh, who's his partner and colleague in that too. Another one where it was a student professor kind of partnership, but, uh, their concept of gameful learning, mm-hmm. there's a real sense of kind of quest and adventure sensed learning, uh, or narrative that's in, embedded into their system as well. Yeah. Barry, uh, we're, um, lucky to have had him previously on the show and, <clears throat> and he's, uh, yeah, I, somebody whose work I admire a lot. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> I will, I will, I will link uh, to that work as well, where I can find it. Um, so, but the one, one of the things that springs to mind when I think about how to bring these priorities to practice is if if I'm using a human centered approach. It would, um, I think that the, this sort of like checklist that you started to describe, I think I can, is super helpful. Um, but in a way it does one of the things that we're arguing is, is probably not the right way, right? Which is that it, it sort of standardizes toward this set of priorities. Um, and I think that there's a there's a place for that. We do that at uh, Mouse. We have a we have a set of uh, learning design tenets um, that our designers use to sort of check work and make sure that we're thinking through all of the different sort of frames that matter to us. And I think that there's a a really important place for that. In in a human centered approach, the really hard thing about that is is that you're really 
uh, it would suggest if you're going by the kind of industry standard for human centered design that that you're really starting with the subject themselves and mm-hmm. doing a a close environmental scan and and really helping your uh, you're doing everything you can in that first phase to help your direction as a designer move forward uh, in sort of a an organic and emergent way. Uh, yeah. ba- based on the responses of the the user, so so how there's there's a tension there that I just want to ask you about and and have you play out a little bit and help me wrap my head around. Yeah, I should have probably explained that too. Is that the the seven and um, the seven are seven that I've I've identified, and I tried to pick ones that I thought clash the most with our current legacy education system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, uh, there are lots of others. There, there are lots of other human centered values and priorities that are worthy of our attention and mm-hmm. that could be, uh, equally useful and powerful lenses for, um, breathing that oxygen into the learning environment and the lives of the, of the learners. Um, I'm offering the seven as a starting point and invite other people to, you know, explore similar priorities and, yeah. uh, and, and to, to kind of co-create. And I think the way you talked about it is, is really beautiful. Um, and in fact, this kind of goes back to the question you asked before about this administrator saying, well, this sounds like a hippie to be kind of, mm-hmm. you know, happening in your uh, cottage in Vermont, um, type of thing. Um, what I've done with administrators a lot in the past, cause this is where I have spent a lot of time, like studying innovative models of, and learner centered, um, uh, self-directed learning environments. Um, I, I often, eventually I just stop and I say, you know what, there's nothing else I could tell you. You can really only possess this if you experience it. Hmm. Just if you go visit five schools, just visit five schools that do this or five learning communities where this is already happening and just be there, just be present and observe and be curious about it. That That's really the most compelling argument for the power of this is for someone to see it. Um, and, and I think, uh, that's where they're also begin to surface that there are other priorities that I didn't, I didn't put in here. Um, I've, yeah. I've proposed seven and, and so I don't necessarily offer them as the seven that, uh, we have to standardize across the system, but I do offer them as seven that are already standardized across the human experience. Yeah. Like these are things that are, that I don't think you can find a culture in the world that has not connected with, with each of these in some way. Yeah. And yet you can find cultures in the world that don't really resonate with making quantification such a high priority. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can find communities. Um, we find subcultures. Yeah. If I, if I can make a, a recommendation to, Folks who are listening who might need um, more than this conversation as inspiration for considering these priorities, right, through a, a sort of uh, a, a worked example, I'll, I'll make a recommendation. Um, have you have you seen the movie? There's a French film, a documentary from, it's probably two decades old now, um, called To Be and To Have. Oh yeah, beautiful. <clears throat> and um you know, it's it's this really intimate close uh 
story about um, a, an educator and their students uh, in a in a French one room schoolhouse, um, and and it's so intimate and and I, it, it was such an important you know as texts go, it was a really important one for me. Uh, but I think it's actually a really beautiful way if you if you sat there and um used your seven priorities as kind of just like a checklist or a or um as an exercise to kind of uh pull out in a really deliberate way kind of um these small moments from a movie like that and and sort of slot them into some of these priorities you mentioned i think it would be an interesting way to to see it characterized in in um in life um yeah it's a beautiful yeah. one yeah that's great that's a that's a that's a great example i i was i really love that one too um i have a collection somewhere on the web of a list of 100 plus educational documentaries and i went through all of them and as i added them to my list because i couldn't find a good list of educational documentaries on the web it's still actually nice. one of the most visited articles i have just because it's a resource um and and, and that, you can find it on etail yeah yeah absolutely and that's this is actually one of my favorites on that list Great. There's another one I can't forget right now, or I can't remember right now, but just talks about other, like, uh, how different institutions, how their culture is embodied in yeah. their approach to education, as opposed to just sort of um, embracing a westernized approach that they're yeah. sort of letting the education system grow out of their own values and culture. It's really beautiful, too, but I can't remember the name of it. Well, when you when you find it, email <laughs> it to me and uh, and we'll make sure we drop it in the, the notes for the show. Sounds um, good. We're, I don't want to keep you too long uh, beyond what I what I promised, but I do. Um, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk a little bit about Goddard and um, a, a couple of questions that are pressing for me. Um, for starters, <clears throat> you and I go back to a time before you were a college president, um, and. What interested me so much to see that you had taken this post was, wow, this this has got to be a place that is looking for, uh, you know, someone who is adamant about a uh, a different kind of future for education, who is is putting ideas and ideals first, uh, and coming from a background that is uh, really steeped in um, the I ideas of of R and D and education, and really keeping things, um, experimental and iterative. And, uh, I hope that feels like a, an honest characterization to you, but, but that was, that was what I got as a, as a colleague, I guess. Um, I, I wonder for you, as you've taken the, the, this post at Goddard, um, what are the things in terms of the ideals you've brought to this position, what are the tensions that draw the most attention for you as a as a college administrator, as opposed to, uh, you know, Bernard, the the ideas guy? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you know, my my last role, I was a vice provost and I had a, you know, a pretty large team that I led and I had to work with marketing and the business office and admissions and student success teams and instructional design teams and other things like that. That's a lot of my work that that uh, that's what's uh, allowed me to have a paycheck and uh, and and a lot of what people see in my writing and my speaking 
it was tested out in that space. Mm. And then I obviously have done tons of interviews and observations of different schools and environments. Um, and I did not, I don't aspire to be a college president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in this role and I did not aspire to, to be it. In fact, you know, in some ways my dream was to, uh, be in a small cottage somewhere writing every day and then doing, you know, intense study and research every so often and then going back and hiding and, and writing about it some more. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I still kind of do that. That's just a part of me and who I'll always be, but there is this book, um, which, uh, the, I know that this isn't video, but, uh, let me see. It's a book that it's called to know for real. Um, and, it was um, Anne Benson and Frank Adams are the ones who are listed as kind of the editor authors, but it has a lot of the words of the original, the first president of Goddard College, um, Tim Pitkin, or Royce S. Pitkin, but Tim Pitkin, as most people um, would refer to him. And this book, it, it articulates the original vision of Goddard College. Mm. Um, and what Goddard actually, so Goddard College, at least as we know it today, Born in the 1930s, there was a growth of fascism in the West and the growth of progressive pedagogy. And there was a belief that uh, a really important part of a free and democratic society was people who know that their voice, their choice matters, their voices and their choices matter, um, that ownership and agency are important. Mm. And you create a place where the community itself uh, represented democratic values. So it was not a place where you went and the hair pastor type of professor would stand up and tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it. But instead a place where your voice, your voice mattered and you were given a chance to kind of choose your own path to some extent with mentoring and advising from some other people. Uh, And it was really beautiful expression. And, and from the beginning um, inspired by Dewey and um, notions of pedagogy or educational methodology, as well as many others, Kilpatrick and others. Um, uh, it was a grand experiment. And from the beginning, they made the commitment that this is going to be an experimental and an experimenting college, meaning that they're not just going to be the same. And Goddard um, uh, also from the beginning had a dream of being a program for adults to come back and mm-hmm. to study. Uh, in fact, Goddard was uh, uh, the first low residency program in the nation, in the United States, where people would come. Low residency meaning you come for like... Uh, uh, one or two weeks intensive each semester, and then you can study remotely with a mentor or advisor. It's kind of our current iteration or model of that. Really mm. beautiful. Um, and uh, we actually have a site in education. You can do bachelor's or master's in education over in Seattle, Washington, bilingually, actually real-time translation between English and Spanish, or you can do it over here in, in Vermont as well. Um, and uh, people can fly in and out. So we have people from all over the country and world. Um, but uh, Goddard was the first around. We, we were one of the early work study, like Antioch and other schools. We had a work study program at one point in our history. Then around in the late 90s and, uh, or so, um, early 2000s, uh, the college had gone through some tough times. Uh, they, there was always a real skepticism about endowments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not an endowment-driven institution, which puts it uh, kind of has some financial risk historically at different times. Um, it was struggling and they decided that they needed to let go of the residential campus. So it went to all low residency. So we have 10 core low residency programs, undergraduate and graduate. In fact, we have one that may or may not be approved here. We'll see what the faculty think, but we may be the first teaching artist program in the nation. Mm -hmm. You can get an MFA 
uh, like a, the kind of the master in education and MFA combined yeah. for aspiring artists. So, so exciting to me, uh, but we'll see the faculty have say on that. <laughs> I don't, mm-hmm. we'll see if they come. I probably shouldn't say it publicly, but we're, it's out there now. Um, and, uh, um, we have, uh, you know, education and count, uh, psychology and, and, uh, um, some really great programs. Um, but, uh, so I'm saying all this because I knew about Goddard because I've studied experimental alternative models of education for 20 years. Yeah. And this book that I showed you, I carried around, I kid you not, I carried around in my backpack for over a full year, about a decade ago. Yeah. Cause I read it and I just highlighted, I had to use different color highlights and over and over and over again. I was so moved by these kind of principles and this vision of, of education. And it, it, it actually framed a, a lot. It was one of the inspirations behind many of my ideas. Like when you read my blog or other things that I've written. Um, and, uh, and there are other books about Goddard. So uh, when you work in higher ed at certain times of the year, um, you start getting these emails coming in about um, job opportunities in higher ed. Hmm. It's the headhunter groups that are trying to get a bunch of applications so they can show that they've served their client well. Yeah. Right? We brought you a lot of people. And, uh, and I just got used to deleting them. I was pretty happy where I was. I was working on my new book that's still on the sidelines. I have a book called Learning Beyond Letter Grades. It's a uh, philosophy of grades and uh, critique of the letter grade system, an argument that, that dehumanizes education um, and offering an alternative. Uh, and I was working on that. So I had no interest in leaving uh, at, at the time in that way. Um, but I will say that, you know, our political climate has really troubled me that it seems like we've had more tension across political and ideological lines. Um, we're never going to have the same beliefs and values. And that's kind of the beauty of this nation, I believe, is that we find a place to, at minimum, tolerate one another, but honor and respect people across mm-hmm. difference. And, um, and Goddard is a place that really values some of those social justice kinds of conversations and themes around diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as this learner-driven pedagogy. <laughs> um, and, um, and I mean, in some ways, Goddard is as close to a Montessori college you can find in the yeah. country, yeah. if you think about it. Um, so all of that combined, like, uh, it was just this moment. And I saw the name Goddard College in this email. Uh, I applied and I heard nothing. And then all of a sudden, I heard something. And uh, I flew out here. And there's this, this building right in the middle of campus called the Clock House, really small building. I'm sitting out there. And um, and they, they asked me a question. They said, well, you know, what's your leadership style? And I said, well, I don't know if I had a leadership style. So I said, well, uh, I think hubris is the downfall of many a great leader. And a tree fell and hit the ground outside of the door, <laughs> literally hit the ground. It was funny because it was, it was two weeks after I had made a declaration that I would not use PowerPoint for six months. I was, yeah. gonna, you know, I was just getting rid of it from my life. So it was like nature affirming my decision saying, okay, no PowerPoint, we'll give you something better. You know? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> or if you believe in the divine, you know, whatever. but, um, so, uh, <clears throat> That's uh th- that tree for in fair fairness, that tree had been struck by lightning and they'd been working on it, but I had no idea it would be falling at that moment. Right. Um, and, uh, um, and so anyway, it was like that for me. It was like all these things I've been studying and exploring. And, and I go through the interview process. And then I found out that Goddard was put on probation with the regional accreditors. Mm. And probation is a, is a tough thing. It's pretty serious. You know, um, there's no guarantee that uh, liberal arts colleges will be around. Uh, a lot of the New England liberal arts colleges are at risk. Um, I mean, Vermont has is at risk of losing over, uh, I think, a third or a fourth of all of its independent colleges within a five-year period. Wow. Um, 
And uh, a lot of these are progressive education institutions. Um, and really what one thing that bothers me and bothered me before I accepted the job is uh, I don't think I actually would have taken the job unless God had were put on probation. So it was mm. put on probation before I um, was offered the job. And then when I heard about it, I thought, oh, man, I really think higher ed needs this. I would hate to see this disappear. And so I want to go and join the community and see what we can do. And there are no guarantees. I mean, this is a game of poker more than a game of chess. That's true in higher ed today. So uh, chess, uh, if you play every move perfectly, you're supposed to win. Mm. In uh, poker, you can play everything perfectly and still lose your hand because yeah. you have to play your hand. And, um, and that's really how it is with every college um, and being on probation. There are some risks and some chances involved. So I can't guarantee where we'll be uh, in 12 months or 24 months, uh, but we have a really strong plan. And, um, and so that's why I kind of, that's why I came. That's why I kind of put a lot of my writing and research on hold, or at least slowed it down to come here was I, I'm just so moved by this model of learner driven education, grade less education, narrative feedback, the dehumanizing principles that, um, I thought, you know, I'm writing about this. I need to put my, my, time where my mouth is, <laughs> my yeah. energy where my mouth is. And, and to, uh, and to give this a try and see what I can do to help and be part of this community. And we can collectively co-create the future of a grand, uh, a grand collection of experiments. Um, Goddard will be different in the future as will all of the higher ed institutions that survive and thrive. Um, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard internally and, um, and other things, but, um, I don't know. I was just compelled and, and I and talk about the seven priorities I wake up and I fall asleep with a sense of, of gratitude. And most days I have multiple moments of wonder. Um, I just pause and I look at what a student is doing here. I mean, the stories of our students, I, I'm kind of amazed actually that we don't have people pounding on the door to get into this place. Yeah. Like I've talked to so many educators who this is exactly what they've been craving um, for an educational, for a degree or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, and not only that is this is the place to uh, teach people and to equip people to lead learner-driven, self-directed, uh, these, these new kind of emergent, innovative educational models. Mm -hmm. There's, if, if, if you come and you have an idea, we can nurture that and stand alongside you as you grow it. Um, uh, in fact, I'm doing the keynote at the Alternative Education Research Organization conference um, out in the Northwest here yeah. in a month or two and get to connect with a lot of those educators. Outstanding. I can't wait to... Uh, I hope they're taping it. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think they are. <laughs> I can't wait to share it. So, um, we have a ton more to talk about. I want to, uh, I'd like to explore every one of the roads, uh, that came up both in your description of Goddard and also, uh, as you continue to tease out this idea and make this case for human centered learning experience design. I think it's a beautiful idea. And the, the reason I reached out is, uh, because I think that, it's uh, an, an idea that deserves lots of uh, um, it deserves lots of massaging and uh, adoption and adaptation and and really thinking deliberately about uh, because because we're just we've been there uh, for a long time and and I think we're ready for these as priorities so uh, I thank you for for spending the time and for raising them and I can't wait to uh, to have you back to talk more. Sounds great. Thanks. 
For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.